Negotiations between the United States and the Islamic Republic of Iran have not gone well. President Biden may soon have to choose between two unappealing options, allowing the theocratic regime to become a nuclear weapons power or using military force to prevent that outcome. Mark Dubowitz, FTD's chief executive, and Matthew Kronig, a former senior policy advisor at the Pentagon, now a professor of government at Georgetown University and director of the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Strategy Initiative, recently published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, arguing that one of those options is decidedly worse than the other. I'm pleased to welcome them to talk with us today. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased to welcome you too to this conversation here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Let's begin with a little background, even though I suspect most listeners are familiar with the history. For decades, Iran has been claiming its nuclear research was for, quote, peaceful atomic energy purposes, close quote, only. Often, I've noticed in the media, you'll see this claim repeated, suggesting, well, it might be true, who knows? Uh, Sometimes you we mention of a fatwa supposedly issued by the Supreme Leader against acquiring nuclear weapons. Is there any possibility that there is a grain of truth in any of that. Mark, uh, why don't you kick us off? First of all, Cliff, thanks for having me on. And it's such a pleasure to be on with my, my good friend, Matt. Um, we've known each other for many years. Um, Matt was with us at, on an FDD trip to Israel. And uh, it was a great, great honor. I think this is our first piece together, Matt, and I, I hope there'll be many more. So Cliff, the short answer is absolutely not. I mean, there, there's no grain of truth to Iran's claims of nuclear innocence. Uh, and I'm not just saying that, but the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has been investigating Iran, um, its suspect sites, its um, military covert activities. And uh, the Israeli Mossad, as, as all of you know, uh, found a warehouse um, in a daring operation. It spirited this warehouse out of Iran. And I've been in Mossad headquarters and I've seen the documents and it's pretty remarkable and quite striking because in those documents, um, in Farsi, translated into English by our, our, our good friends at the Mossad, uh, you see explicit references to an Iranian military nuclear program, uh, a program that was designed at first to develop five atomic weapons with a goal of expanding that to dozens of weapons. And you see in the documents specific and explicit reference to this military nuclear program. So anybody who believes in Iranian nuclear innocence is um, naive or mendacious. You know, and I have to say, as an old extinct wretch, wretch, I do wish the the media would would say that instead of simply putting this claim out there and saying, well, who knows? The media nowadays is 
more likely to say that's not credible, but they don't. Matt, expand on that if you want, or move on to this. In I don't know if most people understand that in Vienna, these negotiations are only indirect negotiations. Maybe explain why that is. Yeah, well, uh, I'd like to also begin by thanking uh, you, Cliff, and uh, for hosting this. And Mark, pleasure to co-author the piece with you, and, and congratulations on all the good work that FDD is uh, doing. Um, I'll, I'll begin by elaborating on Mark's um, point, and, and I agree. You know, there are about eight things uh, that Iran is doing technically that only makes sense uh, really for a military program, wouldn't make sense uh, for a civilian program, uh, you know, enriching uranium at all. The vast majority of countries that have civilian programs don't enrich their own uranium, a heavy water reactor. But, uh, you know, the big one that Mark points out is, is designing nuclear warheads. Uh, you know, why design nuclear warheads if you're not interested? So I think the people that are cautious say, well, we don't know that Iran's made the decision to build nuclear weapons yet. All we know is that they're doing everything they need uh, to put in place a nuclear weapons option. But, you know, the question I ask back to them is, is why work for, you know, decades, invest billions of dollars to get one screwdriver away from a turn from a nuclear weapon? You know, why do we think they would stop short? Of of course, you know, they're they're trying to build um, nuclear weapons. Um, on, on the negotiations, um, you're you're right, and um, you know the United States um, withdrew from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, the 2015 um, nuclear deal, uh, and so um, the, the Iranians are claiming that it's only countries that are still uh, members of this nuclear deal that should be part of the negotiations. Uh, so they're negotiating with the other uh, major powers: the British, the French, the Russians, and the Chinese. Uh, and the Americans are in another room, and um, you know there are people shuttling back and forth. Uh, carrying uh, messages. So so that's one of the things that's, I think, um, discouraging about the negotiations, but, you know, a lot of other discouraging signs as well. It, it doesn't seem that the Iranians are, are interested in, in in agreement. And uh, that makes sense, because as Mark and I point out, they're striding toward a bomb and they're not interested in a deal that would uh, limit their ability to do that. And one more point of background, Mark, you've talked about this a lot, but I think it's worth reiterating the the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that Matt refers to, the Iran deal that President Obama uh, had negotiated and that he agreed to, Congress did not. He claimed it was a great diplomatic victory. He claimed that it blocked Tehran's nuclear ambitions, and we should have been satisfied with that. And maybe it's worth a few moments for you to say what he didn't understand about the deal that his negotiators uh, agreed to. Well, Cliff, what's interesting is I think Barack Obama did understand the, the limitations to the JCPOA because in an interview with Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic, he actually said by year 13 of the agreement, Iran will have zero nuclear breakout, which means that the time it takes for Iran to develop one bomb's worth of weapons grade uranium would essentially be zero. In other words, like hours or, or maybe even days. So he understood that the the JCPOA contained within it a fatal flaw that no matter what you thought of the agreement, the reality was that the restrictions were going to sunset over time. And Iran would emerge with an industrial-sized nuclear program with near-zero nuclear breakout, as Obama himself said, with an advanced centrifuge-powered clandestine sneak-out. And all of this, of course, while Iran was developing ballistic missiles, was uh, expanding on a intercontinental ballistic missile program so that its nuclear tip missiles could hit the United States, would get hundreds of billions of dollars in sanctions relief so that it could fortify its economy 
against our ability to use sanctions pressure in the future. And it had tens of billions of dollars to spend on building up its conventional military and giving Qasem Soleimani the billions of dollars that he needs to underwrite his proxy armies throughout the Middle East. So the JCPOA is a fatally flawed agreement for those reasons. And it was going to result in a lethal end state by the end of 2028, 2029, when we would face a much more dangerous and a much more powerful Iran. Right. <laughs> Hard to see why that would be a, a, good, a good agreement. But I guess it, it, it meant that there'd be no nuclear Iran during President Obama's term. And maybe that's it. Um, one more point of background. Matt, would you say that the JCPOA was similar to the 1994 agreed framework with North Korea? And people will recall, or maybe they won't, President Clinton announced the agreed framework as a also as a great diplomatic victory. He said it ended the Kim dynasty's nuclear ambitions, except, of course, that it didn't. Today, North Korea has nuclear weapons and is working on producing new and improved and better missiles to deliver them not just in Asia, but but anywhere in the world is uh, did, was is the same was the same mistake made twice in a row essentially. Well, there were similar deals, and it was a similar mistake. But I would argue that actually, in, in uh, two important ways, the JCPOA was actually weaker uh, than the North Korea uh, deal. Um, so, um, uh, you know, nor- the North Korea deal prohibited uh, North Korea uh, from reprocessing plutonium. You know, two key ways to make um, uh, fuel for a nuclear device, either reprocessing plutonium or enriching uranium. Uh, so the intention behind the 1994 agreement was to shut down North Korea's uh, nuclear fuel making capability altogether. Uh, with the Iran deal, we actually allowed Iran uh, to have a fuel making capability. Uh, thousand centrifuges, uh, two different uh, facilities, it's uh, expiring over time, uh, as Mark pointed out. And, and so that was a an instance where it was weaker, we allowed Iran to to have the nuclear weapons fuel making capability, and, and then defenders of the deal said, "Well, the Iran deal was better because it was so much more detailed. It was pages and pages. Uh, the North Korea deal was uh, short." Uh, but I argue that that's actually a weakness of the deal. You know, if you say no nuclear facilities, that can be a pretty short deal. If you say, "Well, two facilities, but only six thousand centrifuges. This kind of centrifuge you can only enrich to this level." You know, we were letting Iran get away with so much, which is why we needed the pages and pages of, of detail to prescribe and, you know, exactly what they could and could not do. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I think plenty of people who are listening to this have read your op-ed, but some may not. And I think it's useful anyhow. Mark, maybe just lay out the basic arguments in that op-ed and then we'll, we'll discuss them. Yeah, Cliff, I think the basic argument that that Matt and I really wanted to get at was this issue of um, of course of diplomacy, and that what we're seeing in the negotiations in, in Vienna today is, as Matt said, is the United States is not even in the room with Iran. But never mind that. Um, the entire diplomatic process has begun, and it's now almost a year long, has been the U.S. practicing a policy of kind of maximum deference uh, rather than maximum pressure. Right. So the Joe Biden said the maximum pressure campaign failed. He was going to shift to a maximum diplomacy strategy, which has really been a strategy of deference to Iran. It's about a preemptive concessions. It's about not enforcing sanctions. It's about allowing the Iranian economy to recover and oil sales to spike. It's about trying to convince the Iranians to go back into this fatally flawed JCPOA rather than negotiating a much longer and stronger deal 
that would get to the heart of what Matt mentioned, which is, is how do you permanently block these pathways of enrichment and plutonium processing uh, that allow Iran to have the fissile material to develop a nuclear weapon? So what Matt and I argued is, look, the, the, we're, we're now at the 11th hour, right? These negotiations so far are going nowhere. And if they're going to go somewhere and that there, if there is a deal, it's going to be a deal worse than the JCPOA. And that if you really want leverage, you need to enhance the credibility of American military power. And that credibility today has been shot. It's been shot because nobody believes that Joe Biden is prepared to use military force. Uh, and the Iranians certainly don't. It's been shot as a result of the debacle in Afghanistan, which the Iranians and others have perceived as a clear expression of Joe Biden's unwillingness to use American military power. And that without a credible military threat, there won't be successful diplomacy. And without successful diplomacy, there is not going to be a permanent solution to Iran's nuclear weapons program. And so that what that leads you, I think, ineluctably to is the inevitability that Iran either developing nuclear weapons or of a U.S. president using military force to stop Iran from developing those weapons. Iranian nuclear weapon would be disastrous for the region, disastrous for U.S. national security and for reasons we can talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but that unfortunately, the least bad option, if we can't get a diplomatic agreement that permanently shuts down Iran's nuclear weapons program, will for the United States to use military force. I don't think Matt and I are under any illusions about the Biden administration and Joe Biden's willingness to use military force. But we at least wanted to lay out the argument that a competent American president would enhance the credibility of the military option and, if exhausted all other options, would use military force to stop stop an atomic weapons program. Matt, it strikes me as kind of astonishing. You've been in government, so you can speak to this, that anyone in government in the State Department wouldn't understand that diplomacy without the threat of force doesn't have to be explicit, can be implicit. Without that, I mean, it's fine if you're negotiating lumber imports from Canada. I don't think you have to threaten to, to bomb Toronto or Ottawa in order to get a deal. But if you're taking it all off the table with the Islamic Republic of Iran, the U.S. might as well be Switzerland or Ecuador, because you're not going to convince these guys, realistically, hey, isn't this just better for all of us? I mean, don't we all want to get along? That's, that, that, that's not the way it works. Are there people who really don't understand that? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I think there are some who don't, but uh, you're right that, you know, that way of thinking about diplomacy goes way back. Uh, Frederick the Great famously said that diplomacy without armaments is like music without instruments. Mm -hmm. And in, in this case, you know, Iran uh, sees a pretty good path ahead of it right now. It thinks it can continue uh, on this path and um, build, build a bomb. And so I think the job of those who want a deal is to convince the Iranians uh, that know that the path that they're on is is dangerous and could uh, result in very serious consequences, and so therefore they they should engage in um, good faith negotiations. Uh, you know, because I think um, you know Mark and I both think the best way to solve this would be a good deal. Uh, that's what we want. We don't want to see a military strike, uh, but that we think having that credible military option uh, is is necessary. And um, you know, the president in this case has said that other options uh, are on the table. Presumably, he's hinting at uh, military options. But, you know, given that he just promised the Russian military options would be off the table uh, in Ukraine, uh, you do have to wonder about their willingness to use force uh, in uh, in the case of Iran. 
Mark, play devil's advocate here. Some would say, yeah, but after the JCPOA, there were restrictions. There was some verifications. Um, and, you know, things were going fine until the Trump era came. And then, boy, did the uh, the Iranians ratched up their nuclear program under Trump. Um, is that true? Um, and what's happened since Trump left office? So, Cliff, it's really interesting. So um, our colleagues, Ben and Ben Kalblu and Andrea Stricker, um, did a really interesting analysis. They, they actually dug into the details of Iranian nuclear expansion since May 2018 when President Trump withdrew from the JCPOA. And what they discovered, surprisingly, because it's counter-narrative, right, the narrative today in the media and certainly from the Biden administration is that Iranian nuclear expansion occurred as a result of Trump's withdrawal from the 2018, uh, in 2018 from the JCPOA. What they discovered is actually that the majority of Iran's nuclear expansion efforts occurred after Biden was elected. So there were about four examples of Iran deciding to incrementally expand its nuclear program after May 2018. But after Biden was elected and it became very clear to the Iranians that Joe Biden as president of the United States was going to shift from maximum pressure to maximum deference, there have been 10 or 11 examples of nuclear expansion. In fact, the most egregious nuclear expansion occurred since Biden was elected. So what, what do you draw from that? Well, first of all, you know, I think, I think the conventional narrative is wrong. I think what you draw from that is that the Iranians feared President Trump. They feared him because they didn't, couldn't predict what he would do. They feared him because they saw that he did something no other president was willing to do, which was to kill IRGC Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani, uh, and that they weren't sure with Trump on any given day what he would do and whether he would use American military force to destroy their nuclear program or go after the Revolutionary Guard bases or go after the regime. And so they were very tentative and careful in expanding their nuclear program under Trump. The second they knew Biden was going to be president, they went all out and they began to expand to where they are today, which is 60% enriched uranium, which is just a stone's throw away from weapons grade. Um, the installation of advanced centrifuges, much more powerful, much more efficient. Therefore, you need fewer numbers to produce the same weapons grade uranium, which makes it much easier to hide smaller numbers of advanced centrifuges, and they're building up their enriched uranium stockpiles, which is lowering breakout time to where it is today, which is probably just a few weeks, as, as Matt and I uh, have explained. And so that, I think, is the, the correct inference, that in the face of maximum deference, a, a new administration not willing to use power, not even willing to enforce existing U.S. sanctions, the Iranians have gone on a significant drive to expand their nuclear program and, and practice nuclear blackmail. And I'll just end with this, Cliff. People say, well, we could have bought ourselves a few more years under the JCPOA. No, we would have bought ourselves a few more years and we would have ended up with a much more dangerous, much more powerful Iran where they are today near nuclear breakout, but with a trillion dollar economy instead of a $400 billion economy, an ICBM program instead of a limited mis uh, ballistic missile program, and we would be having to confront a much more dangerous, powerful Iran in five, six years, rather than Iran today, which is still weaker, has been suffering as a result of Trump's maximum pressure campaign. Uh, and by the way, and Qasem Soleimani is no longer on, on the earth. 
And we should take one minute, Matt, I'll, I'll direct this to you to just talk a little bit more about Qasem Soleimani, because uh, if you're if you're reading the Iranian press, you don't have to read in Farsi. They do plenty in, in English, press TV and all that. They say Qasem Soleimani was a very significant uh, anti-terrorism warrior. And he was uh, an important government official on a peace mission in Iraq when the Americans killed him. And they've been said, we will have, and this is the word I think they use, revenge for this killing. So maybe just tell us, I want to make sure everybody listening to this understands who Qasem Soleimani was. Uh, sure. Well, he was a bad guy. Uh, <laughs> the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the, uh, the, the running Iran's proxy and terror operations uh, in the region and around the world. So behind Iran's um, destabilizing activity in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Yemen, uh, Syria. Um, elsewhere, he actually uh, was behind a, a plot to bomb Cafe Milano in Georgetown uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and so he has the blood of a lot of people on his hands, the blood of a lot of American uh, service uh, members in Iraq and Afghanistan on, on his hands. And uh, so the world is a better place uh, without him. Uh, now, some critics uh, of, the, of the killing said, well, uh, he'll just be replaced. And he has been replaced, but, uh, you know, People matter, and uh, he, he was a unique individual, uh, a unique leader, and, and his successor just um, isn't isn't as effective. So um, overall, I think that was the right move to move him from the battlefield. Mark, you mentioned this before, but I you said and I and I agreed we should. I want you to elaborate on this. People may maybe people say, you know what? Too bad if Iran. Iran's current rulers get nuclear weapons, but you know Pakistan has nuclear weapons, and it's yeah, it's a technology. It's an, I think it's worth speaking for a minute about what should be imagined or or foreseen should Tehran become a nuclear weapons power or even a near a near nuclear weapons power. And I actually I could like both of you to just imagine that for 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 a moment or two. Yeah, Cliff. I mean, first of all, I you know I I find it amazing how many people are willing to predict that Iran is not prepared to use nuclear weapons if they require it. I mean, everybody seems to be so confident that the Supreme Leader of Iran, right, who's a brutal theocrat, who is willing to massacre thousands of his own people, with Qasem Soleimani has been responsible for the deaths of over a half a million people throughout the Middle East and Syria and Iraq and elsewhere, right, who, who has explicitly said on many occasions that his goal is to eliminate the state of Israel is not actually true to his word, right? So we, we shouldn't believe that. This is all just inflated rhetoric. And the, the mullahs are not going to be prepared to use nuclear weapons against, a, uh, against the Jewish state. Now, a guy named uh, Rafsanjani, who was a former president of Iran, who's considered by the sort of Washington elite to have been a pragmatist and a moderate, uh, was quoted as saying that that Israel is a one bomb country, and that Iran is prepared to uh, sustain a retaliatory nuclear attack from Israel uh, and lose you know millions of Iranians, but if if it means getting rid of the Zionist cancer, this was this was the moderates in the Iranian political establishment. So you can imagine what the hardliners are like. The second thing is. Um, you know, and Matt and I wrote about this, is, is the real danger of nuclear proliferation in the Middle East. I mean, there is no way if, if Iran gets nuclear weapons that the Saudis are going to tolerate that. The Saudis have already, already started to begin building a, uh, a fuel cycle uh, with Chinese assistance. There's no way they're going to allow their mortal enemy to have nuclear weapons. So the Saudis are likely to develop nuclear weapons. Uh, the Turks, the Egyptians, the Algerians, the Emiratis, 
Uh, one can imagine a nuclear-armed Iran with multiple nuclear weapons powers, um, where either through intention or through miscalculation, there is a nuclear conflagration in the Middle East. And, and that's something that is obviously of deep concern to U.S. national security. And third, and I would just conclude with this, even if Iran doesn't use its nuclear weapons, even if the Saudis and the Emirates and the Turks and others don't decide to, put, to develop their own nuclear weapons program, the reality is, as the North Koreans have taught us, is that with a nuclear weapon, our conventional military options are diminished considerably, if not eliminated, right? We all know today, I mean, let's be, let's be honest, that the U.S. military option, certainly the South Korean military option, but even the U.S. military option on the Korean peninsula today is near zero, which is one of the reasons we've allowed the Kim family to remain in power. And with nuclear tip missiles, we're not willing to, to use a conventional uh, military option. That's exactly what Ali Khamenei has said publicly. He has said, my goal is to turn Tel Aviv into Seoul. And what he means is he means that he will use nuclear weapons as well as conventional uh, weaponry on, on every border to take away the Israeli Defense Forces conventional military option. Because we would always have to consider that any kind of conventional escalation could result in nuclear conflagration. And we are there likely, we are going to constrain Israel's hand and the Israelis may constrain their own hand knowing that that could be the result of it. So a nuclear weapon in the hands of the Ayatollah is not only unacceptable, it should be unimaginable, but unfortunately where we are today, it's becoming increasingly imaginable. Because I think there is a risk too of, of nuclear attack on, on the U.S. homeland and, and not to be, um, you know, um, uh, exaggerating the threat, but uh, Iran uh, is interested in developing uh, long range missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, uh, North Korea has just recently become the third uh, U.S. adversary after Russia and China that can hold the U.S. homeland at risk with the threat of nuclear war. So Iran could become fourth. And I do think there'd be a risk of nuclear war. You know, some people say, well, the Iran, Iran's leaders aren't crazy. They don't want a nuclear war. Uh, but do we think uh, President Kennedy was crazy? I, I don't think so. But after the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy said that the risk of nuclear war was uh, 50%, uh, r- roughly a coin toss. Uh, so what is the risk of nuclear war that Iran's leaders are going to be willing to run in a crisis with Israel, crisis with the United States? You know, I, I don't know the answer, but I know it's it's greater than, than zero. So the there's a real risk of things spinning out of control uh, that could result in a nuclear attack on Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, London, uh, Washington, uh, New York. So the stakes really couldn't be higher. It's worth remembering that since 1979, the chant that it, that and, and the chant comes from the from both supreme leaders. It comes from the presidents and in the, in the mosques is death to America. Now, maybe they only mean, oh, those Americans are so annoying, but it's a real risk to think death to America couldn't possibly mean death to America and what, what what could be accomplished through a nuclear strike, even at some sacrifice, which one would expect to, uh, to Tehran. If the U.S. were to try to destroy or at least set back the nuclear weapons program, Matt, you start on this, how would that be done militarily? Yeah, good uh, question. And um, you asked about the U.S. option, and that's what our um, article was about. And, and the Israeli option is a bit uh, different. Well, talk about both for a minute here as we get, we get towards the conclusion, but I think both are worth having, including in this discussion. Yes. So, um, you know, the Iranian crisis is a huge problem, but it's really a problem about four buildings. 
Uh, you know, there are four key buildings that if we destroyed, it would set Iran's program back uh, significantly. It's the, the two enrichment facilities, the uranium conversion facility at Esfahan, and this uh, uh, reactor uh, partially under construction at Iraq. So we destroy those buildings. Uh, without those facilities, Iran can't uh, build nuclear weapons. Now, the way the United States plans military options, of course, it's um, cautious. You know, we wouldn't just send airplanes in directly at those um, facilities. We'd want to suppress air defenses uh, and uh, things first. So that would be the kind of minimum option, uh, suppressing Iranian air defenses, probably with standoff capabilities. Uh, and then um, to get those above ground facilities at Afghan and Iraq, those are easy um, targets. Uh, the more difficult ones are the uh, underground uh, targets, the uh, uh, enrichment facilities. Uh, but the United States has developed a bunker busting bomb, the, the MOP, the Massive Ordnance Penetrator, uh, that was essentially designed uh, to destroy f- facilities like this. And so several secretaries of defense have said that uh, there's little doubt that the United States uh, could destroy these facilities. Uh, so that would be the first part. Um, Iran would likely retaliate. And so then the United States would also uh, need to be positioned to deal with that retaliation. But I think as we saw with the strike on uh, General uh, Soleimani, and I think I misspoke earlier, he's the head of the Quds force of the IRGC, not of the IRGC overall. But uh, as we saw in that strike, which is the expeditionary force, the out of the out, outside the country in support. I mean, it's the worst part of the IRGC. I think that's fair to say. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, many people were predicting this is going to lead to World War Three in the Middle East. And, and instead, we saw that Iran aimed for this kind of calibrated response uh, to strike back, but not too hard. And I think we'd see something similar after a strike on their nuclear facilities. Uh, they would have to do something, uh, but they don't want a major war uh, with the United States. And so they're um, going to restrain their, their response. Mark, you want to talk? You want to address that? If not, I'll go ahead and then I'll go to my exit questions. I got two. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you talked about the U.S. option. Uh, I mean, obviously, the Israeli option is more limited. Um, you know, the Israeli military doctrine is about mowing the grass. And I think as sort of Matt and I played with a piece, you know, we kind of thought of an analogy um, and that the United States could really go in first and it could rip out the most dangerous uh, weeds in the nuclear garden. Uh, Matt talked about these four buildings, take them out. And then, you know, the United States may have to go back, but I think Israel then would be in a much stronger position to kind of mow the grass, uh, tend to the garden. And uh, as soon as new weeds begin to emerge, the Israelis could go in there and take those out. So you could see the United States doing this first um, major operation and then the Israelis uh, sustaining this effort over, over a number of years, both through military force and also through cyber and covert action. Um, let me ask you this. The reactions to your piece, Mark, maybe you start on this, both inside the U.S., um, but all, as well as abroad, maybe just sketch those out for us. How what what's what's been the, the response? Well, the response from the Iranians has been interesting. So the Iranian mission to the United Nations, people may not realize this, but the Iranians actually do have a, a permanent mission in New York to the UN. Um, they uh, issued a public statement blasting Matt and me and the op-ed um, in in ways that you would expect and language that you would expect. Um, we were also um, condemned in Iranian government-controlled media, um, and so the the reaction of the Iranians they certainly they noticed the piece. Um, it was obviously in, in a prominent newspaper, uh, and they they certainly track Matt and me very closely. And so when we write things, they that it often 
pops up in Iranian media. But I think this one particularly annoyed them. Um, the reaction in Washington was probably what you would expect as well. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I'm no longer invited to all those fancy cocktails. I think cocktail parties, but Matt still is. He may not be <laughs> invited in 2022 for having the audacity to, to co-author a piece with me. Um, but I think the reaction from, you know, from people in Washington was, again, what you would expect along policy and political lines. Um, I actually met with a number of senior administration officials, uh, both before and after the piece came out. And um, look, I think there's an appreciation from some people inside the administration that Joe Biden needs to be much more explicit about his willingness to use military force, right? I think they agreed with with Matt and me on that. Um, Whether he's going to use military force is a whole other issue. I'm still skeptical he ever will, but they they understood and they understand that he needs to be more explicit if he's gonna arm his diplomacy. So it, you know, publicly it broke along political and policy lines, privately, Senior administration officials with whom I spoke um, acknowledge the importance of, of a much more explicit military deterrent. There's a uh, go ahead, uh, please go ahead, Matt. So, so there was some controversy. I, I would say, in a way, it shouldn't have been controversial because we have several consecutive presidents now saying a nuclear armed Iran is unacceptable and that all options are on the table to prevent Iran from building nuclear weapons. Uh, and, and we're almost out of time. And as we point out in the piece, uh, you know, uh, Iran is almost there. And so if diplomacy won't work, uh, then what else do we have? Um, you know, this is um, uh, really a, a last resort or it could soon be a last resort. And so everybody who is opposed to uh, the world's leading state sponsor of terror getting the ultimate instrument of military uh, force, I think, should be in favor of military strikes as as a last resort. Yeah. Look, can I just jump in just quickly? Yeah. Um, I mean, Matt and I talked in the piece. Uh, we were very skeptical about a deal. Uh, I must say, I, I think I think there's there's a growing chance that there will be a deal. I, I think the administration is so desperate to avoid any kind of military confrontation. I think, Cliff, to your point, you know, for a president to say Iran will not get a nuclear weapon on my watch is really what they mean when they say this is unacceptable. And I think that uh, the Biden administration is increasingly desperate for any kind of agreement. And I think Iran has played the game they play oh so well every time at the negotiating table, uh, where through a combination of intransigence and, uh, and, and recklessness, uh, they've been able to squeeze significant concessions out of the United States. So I would not be surprised to see either return to the JCPOA or a return to some kind of shorter and weaker deal, you know, what, what we've called uh, um, less for more, you know, less nuclear restrictions for more sanctions relief, emerging over the coming weeks and months because, because of that unwillingness of Joe Biden to really use American power, not just military power, but covert action and cyber power. By the way, all of the powers that the Israelis are willing to use have used quite successfully to slow down Iran's nuclear program. Um, and if the Israelis just had American capabilities, I think the Israelis could destroy the program and set it back for many, many years, as, as Matt described. I have many more questions in the interest of time. I'm not going to ask them, but I'll, but I'll give you a chance if you'd like, Matt. Is there anything else that we haven't dis- explored where you, where you think it's just important that listeners understand a point or two? And we'll do that in, in, in before we close shop. Well, um, you did such a great job asking <laughs> 
And uh, not really. I mean, just to um, summarize, you know, I think there are three major possible outcomes to this crisis. Uh, one would be uh, a deal. And I think Mark and I agree a good deal is, is the best possible outcome. Um, but then sh- short of that, then we will um, at some point face this difficult or could face this difficult decision between allowing Iran to have nuclear weapons or using force to stop it. And um, uh, I, I agree with um, all the presidents who said this is unacceptable, should be on the table. Uh, so I hope that by uh, putting the military option on the table, we can convince Iran to negotiate. Uh, but um, if, if not, I do think that we should uh, use the military option to keep keep Iran from the bomb. Mark, final thoughts? Yeah, Cliff, I, I think I, I'm just uh, maybe I've been in Washington too long. It's like now almost 20 years and I've become too cynical. Um, I think there's a growing number of people in this town who are willing to live with an Iranian nuke. Um, I, I think that that in the decision making apparatus of the Biden administration, when they look at the crisis in Ukraine, when they look at the crisis, potential crisis over Taiwan, uh, when they look at their domestic priority list, the end of the day, when they look at all of this, would they like Iran to develop a nuclear weapon? No. Would they prefer not be under, under Biden? Sure. But I think their political calculation is that they can survive it politically and that the United States, separated by oceans, um, with overwhelming military and nuclear power, uh, can can address Iran's nuclear threat. Um, I, I think they've I think they've given up a nuke, and I think the rest of this is is uh, is is theatrics as they uh, negotiate, quote unquote, in Vienna, which essentially amounts to giving Iran patient pathways to nuclear weapons and the lethal end state that we describe. So unacceptable really means essentially we've conceded, and uh, I'm I'm afraid that's where we're heading. Yeah, you know, uh, I've I've been in in Washington even longer than than you have, and I find that no matter how cynical I become, I, I just can't keep up. <laughs> so, <laughs> with that, I'll close for now. Listen, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Matt. I think this has been a very important, very good discussion. I hope it is provoking serious discussions in the White House, in the Pentagon, in the State Department. Uh, they should be thinking about this hard. Maybe they are. Um, I hope to have, you'll both come back and talk again because their developments uh, developments are going to be quick and um, we'll, we'll want to analyze them. Thanks to all of you also who have been here to, with us today. We welcome your criticisms, we welcome your questions, we welcome your suggestions, and we're glad to have you join us every time here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.